My name is Carrie Ha, and I'm a researcher at UC Irvine. I'm in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. I'm a neuroscientist, which means that I study the brain. And in the line of work that I'm in right now, I am studying the mouse brain and its visual system. Specifically, I'm looking at how amblyopia, or more commonly known as lazy eye, affects the brain and where the problems of amblyopia may start. I hope that my work will help cure amblyopia in the future and other visual system problems. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There, you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Today, I'd like to welcome Carrie. She is from the Department of uh, Neurobiology and Behavior, you said, yes, from UCI. Now, we know each other because you gave a talk for us at Bruise and Brains at one point, and um, we had a few conversations going forward about the state of science and making it in science and stuff like that. And um, so I'm really glad uh, you came out here to give an interview. I'm so glad to talk to you. Yeah, happy to be here. So let's start off as we always do. Can you tell us about the work that you do? Yeah. So I study the visual system in the brain. And currently I'm working with mice because their uh, visual system is very similar to the human visual system in many ways. And I study the mouse visual system in an effort to try to figure out where visual disorders may arise in the brain. So one particular visual disorder I'm studying right now is called amblyopia or lazy eye. And uh, it comes about uh, because of abnormal visual experience during early childhood. So when you have uh, eye disorders such as strabismus or very uneven optical um, power differences between the two eyes or even ca uh, cataract during early infancy, you can have problems at the level of the brain that are uh, caused by these early eye disorders. And it's not that the eye is anything, has anything wrong um, in terms of its physiology or uh, structure. It's that the brain pathways from the eye to higher visual uh, areas never develop properly. So I want to understand um, where those problems start uh, in the brain. And the mouse allows us to be able to use really uh, state-of-the-art techniques and be a bit invasive <laughs> um, in our uh, ability to really probe at very detailed mechanisms um, uh, with which uh, problems may arise and also how just in general visual system works. Um, so I'm looking at how um, the single handshake basically between neurons 
uh, to the next neuron. So these uh, things called synapses. So the communication point between two neurons, how they are uh, communicating, uh, how that is being activated um, when the mouse sees certain types of visual uh, stimuli. And also, I'm looking at how neurons are firing and also at the level of uh, how that um, certain behaviors may be affected by visual uh, disorders. So my hope is that with this work, we'll gain a better understanding of how some of these uh, disorders like amblyopia is arising from the brain and try to find better ways to treat amblyopia than what has been done for, if not millennia, for hundreds of years, which is to patch the good eye um, to try and force the brain to use the weak eye for vision uh, during early childhood. So this patching therapy has been sort of the gold standard uh, therapy for amblyopia for many, many years, and it doesn't work all the time. Um, many adults still have um, amblyopia that was not treated. And it's thought that basically the brain is hardwired after uh, age of about eight years old or so. So we don't try to treat amblyopia beyond that age. Um, so it, we still don't have a cure for adult amblyopia. Um, and so there's still a lot of work that remains to be done to try to understand um, how, this, how it all works and how we can treat it better. So just trying to process. So essentially, when one eye is bad and one eye is good, mm -hmm. uh, the, vis the visual power, I mean, uh, when you're young, yeah. that leads to abnormal, I guess, pathways being formed in the brain, essentially? Yeah. So, that's so the, primary the two eyes are always trying to um, win over more territory. Basically, they're always fighting for territory in the brain when they're developing. And so when one eye is kept at a disadvantage because of the, these uh, problems at the level of the eyes, then the brain decides, okay, I'm not going to assign that much territory to you because you're providing weak and noisy input. So the good eye wins out, basically. So the pathways uh, from the good eye kind of overtake the pathways that that would have been um, assigned to the weaker eye. Hmm, that's interesting. That reminds me of, so I have really bad vision in my left eye mm -hmm. instead of my right eye. And I actually have always thought that it feels like there's physically less bandwidth from my left oh, eye yeah. than my right eye. Like if I just cover up my right eye and I look at something, it takes like just a fraction of a second more for me to identify what something is with just my left eye. Right. Okay, so I didn't... I always suspected that was a thing, so I didn't realize that was an actual thing. Yeah. So what is it about children specifically that it all locks in at the age of eight? What's so special about yeah. that particular point so in time? Brain is uh, one of the organs that are... that that's very interesting because of its ability to adapt and be plastic, Right. But we all know that um, when we are young and when we're children, uh, we're much better able to learn new skills. And for example, languages, you know, we, we are able to just absorb a new language like a sponge when we're a little kid and learn a foreign language without uh, an accent. But 
when we try to learn a, a, a new language when we're adults, it's harder to do and you inevitably end up developing uh, uh, an accent. So it's kind of like that. So your brain is less plastic when you are older. So um, the when you're uh, a young child, your brain pathways are still developing and they're still trying to figure out um, which at which state they need to sort of solidify all the connections. And so um, by having the treatment done before that window closes, um, you have a better chance of treating amblyopia than, than much later. I say that, but um, more recent research has shown that there's actually a lot of potential for uh, residual uh, plasticity in the brain, even in adulthood. So the whole kind of reason why I got into this field um, during my postdoc years uh, into the vision field was um, because I read this book uh, by this author uh, called Susan Berry. And um, she wrote this book called Fixing My Gaze. And she uh, basically described her experience of being in her 50s and regaining uh, stereo vision or 3D vision in her 50s through these eye exercises that she was doing with an optometrist. And basically, she had this particular form of uh, uh, strabismus, which was she would uh, alternate which eye she's fixating with um, basically uh, on a second to second basis she would change from fixating with her left eye to her right eye and this uh, led to her having very fatigued vision um, later on in life and was just causing all kinds of problems for her so she really wanted to fix that problem and so she went to her eye doctor and they prescribed some exercise she could do at home as well as in the clinic and one day she was sitting in uh, in her car and the steering wheel just popped out at her. <laughs> and so things started to become three-dimensional for her when her brain finally learned to use the both eyes for vision together. And so that really inspired me to go into the vision research because, you know, all throughout my uh, neuroscience undergrad degree, I, I learned that your brain is... Yeah, you're like uh, the the circuits in your brain, like the sensory circuits, uh, like the visual circuits, are hardwired past the age of eight. But here it was; there was a clear example where you could definitely rewire and refine things even when you're in your fifties. So I kind of jumped at the opportunity of changing my field <laughs> um, after my PhD and went into vision research. Um, so yeah, I think that's, um, childhood plasticity definitely is, uh, much greater than adult plasticity, but we shouldn't, you know, underestimate the, the brain plasticity potential in adults as well. Could you really quickly explain what brain plasticity means? Yeah. So it's kind of an umbrella term. Uh, that catches all in a way because we use plasticity for many different types of uh, phenomena that we want to describe that happens in the brain. So basically, whenever um, 
the communication points between two neurons become strengthened or weakened due to some external or internal factors. We, we call that plasticity. So the connection strength is changing. So synaptic plasticity has happened. Um, or um, there can be kind of a more whole scale level reorganization of the brain pathways, such as those seen after, you know, uh, kind of a tragic, you know, phenomenon happened, like, like in a, in, in a stroke or in, you know, brain trauma or something like that. And we know that, uh, uh, much greater level of rewiring can happen. Um, so, uh, that we, we also, uh, refer to as brain plasticity as well. So it's kind of a umbrella term for a lot of different things. And as in any genre of biology, we don't quite understand <laughs> the mechanisms involved in, in all of these phenomena, but they all sort of have something in common and we call that the same thing. <laughs> mm, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess the things that are going on in our body is this holistic there's a lot mm -hmm. of things going on working together at the same time. And yeah. yeah, I imagine that being very difficult. That being, um, so my next question, why, what's so special about the mouse brain, the mm -hmm. mouse visual system that makes it so applicable to humans? Right. So mice uh, have basically um, overall very similar architecture uh, as, um, as humans in terms of their sensory uh, systems. There are definitely differences in terms of subtle uh, structural differences in terms of some of what some of the brain areas look like can be different between humans and mice. But overall, you know, the connections go from the eyes to the thalamus, to the visual cortex and to higher visual cortex areas. And all, all of that is the same. Um, in mice and in humans. And what mice uh, can bring to the visu vision science community is the fact that they are very easy to manipulate in terms of their genetics. And there are a lot of uh, tools available in order to measure activity in the brain. For example, this uh, state-of-the-art imaging technique that I use, which is called the two-photon calcium imaging, um, allows me to literally see brain cells fire in real time as the mice are viewing different things in their uh, visual field. And also the ability to generate, as I said, you can very easily manipulate a ge the genetics of uh, mice, the ability to generate certain types of visual disorders, um, you mean, I mean, model uh, some disorders in mice um, is a, also a very attractive feature. So we, um, I just started collaborating with some um, researchers in uh, ophthalmology, and they have this mouse that are born with uh, a model of retinal degeneration. So you can basically use this mouse model to try and study um, how this disease might arise and also how we may be able to treat it. So yeah, so mice just bring a lot of uh, good technical advantages. Is it because they have quick life cycles that we're able to breed them That quickly? too. I yeah. see. Okay. 
I wanted to ask about the two-photon calcium imaging. Mm -hmm. Two things. Could you explain a little bit about how that works? And number two, you're able to see neurons working in real time in the brain, which is really cool. But at the same time, I wonder, can you directly translate which neurons are firing into what the mouse is thinking? How does that, how do you process that and think about that data that you produce? Right. So the two photon calcium imaging uh, has uh, become this enormous new technique in physiology, basically in neuroscience. So before we used to stick electrodes into the brain and pick up electrical impulses or electrical currents coming into cells because neurons talk to each other through chemical synapses and through um, electrical impulses. So when a neuron is trying to talk to the next neuron, it's generating all these electrical impulses. So um, the main disadvantage with the electrical uh, recording techniques have been that it's quite invasive. You have to stick a wire into the brain and it's often not very easy to track what a single cell is doing over many days because you've stuck on a wire into the brain and damaged the area and often the mouse can move around or, you know, and, and the wire can move around. So you lose contact with the same cells. Whereas uh, using this uh, imaging technique, you're basically putting a clear window into the brain and then um, the sensor is the calcium sensors that we genetically express in the neurons of the brain um, in the mouse. So basically, whenever the, the neuron is firing an electrical impulse, um, calcium floods into the cell and the calcium increase in the cell turns on this uh, calcium sensor that we've expressed called GCAMP. It, it turns it from a non-fluorescent state to a fluorescent state. So using a very powerful laser, um, uh, we can excite this molecule and basically see when calcium is flooding into the cell. And so to get at your question of, okay, so you can, it's great that you can see uh, uh, neurons and synapses and brain, different brain areas lighting up and, you know, firing away, how do you know if that's related at all to what the mouse is seeing? Um, well, we can uh, do a correlation. So basically, you know, given a particular type of visual uh, stimulus that we were showing the mouse, how was this cell responding? And then what about this other type of visual stimulus. So let's say a really fast moving stimulus versus a very slow moving, but very fine detailed stimulus. How is this cell responding? So um, we were actually quite surprised to find like as, as a field in vision, vision research to find that uh, visual cortex neurons in the mouse visual system is very reliable. Actually, if you show different types of visual stimulus, you will find that cells are very narrowly tuned to a particular type of direction of motion, for example. 
Um, and that specificity in tuning is just as sharp as you would find in the monkey brain, for example, using electro, electro, electrical uh, recording techniques. So we were actually very pleased to find that that similarity, that, that mouse, although they're known to be you know, not that great in vision, <laughs> um, they do respond to visual stimulus very robustly, and they do have to navigate and um, escape predators using their vision in their life as well. So they do see <laughs> and they do um, use their visual system for, for their behaviors. So another way, really more de um, decisive way to tell whether the mouse is paying attention to the visual stimuli that we're showing would be to do a behavioral task. So basically train the mouse to uh, report seeing something uh, by uh, a certain types of behavior, either button press or or licking a spout or something like that. So that is actually something that I want to do um, to go beyond, you know, just looking at uh, brain activity during passive viewing and do more uh, types of uh, research where we can really correlate the mouse's behavior with the brain activity. But it's harder because you have to train the mouse. <laughs> yeah. So how big is the, um, does the mouse have to be in anything special for you to be able to image it? How, how big is the, the setup, I guess? Oh, yeah. So the setup uh, for the two-photon calcium imaging, if you can imagine a typical microscope, um, so the microscope part itself is sort of like about the, that size, um, of a basic microscope, but then behind it is there's this laser, right? And then there's all the mechanical components um, that, you know, the laser beam has to travel from the laser to the microscope and actually ultimately come out through the objective onto the brain of the mouse. So the entire apparatus sits on a floating table that's too massive to carry out the door. It's an optical bench. The size bench. of a, yeah, optical bench, and its size of, I don't know, half of this room would be the scope. That's yeah. a huge scope. Yeah. It's very expensive. It's like an equipment. eight by eight room, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge scope. Dang. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned a little earlier that you did your PhD, and then you kind of switched fields because of this book that you read. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the field that you were in before? Oh, so I was in another um, branch of neuroscience. So I was looking at uh, hippocampus, which is sort of the memory center of the brain. Um, and I was looking at it um, in the dish. So basically um, looking at very basic properties with which neurons in the hippocampus operate. So Hippocampus is very interesting structure, not only because it's one of the main structures that are involved in Alzheimer's disease, um, but also um, it's a, a very beautiful structure. <laughs> um, and so, and also it generates these uh, brain rhythms called theta oscillations. So what I was studying during my PhD was how these 
theta range, which is uh, a rhythm that happens at about four to seven hertz. So four every four to seven, sorry, four to seven times a second, there would be a cycle of this brain rhythm happening from the hippocampus when uh, the animal is actively exploring or it's going through REM sleep, actually. And it's kind of mysterious why the brain creates and generates these rhythms. So it's thought that it's involved in um, memory retrieval and consolidation um, and for strengthening uh, and weakening the correct set of synapses. So the brain plasticity I was talking about earlier, it's thought that brain rhythms are very important for supporting brain plasticity. So I was studying very fundamental mechanisms of how this rhythm arises from the dish. Um, but really what it came down to was I, because I was only studying it in the dish, I didn't really see how this could relate to anything in the real world. <laughs> and then when I learned about, you know, the, the work that was, um, done by vision researchers in recent years to try and engage, uh, the brain's ability to repair itself, to, um, regain function and regain sight, I was very excited. Like here's, uh, a type of a mechanism, uh, or understanding about the brain that we can actually use to help people, you know? So, so that's why I changed, uh, fields because I realized as you get further and further into academic career, you really have to love what you do because you know, it can, you know, involve a lot of, you know, long hours, a lot of rejections, <laughs> um, at, you know, publications, um, and other things, you know, job applications, that kind of stuff. So you really have to believe in what you do and really love what you do that, that even if all else fails, you can still derive pleasure from the work, the very work that you're doing with your own hands. So I chose to change fields because I knew that although theta oscillations are very interesting intellectually, um, I chose to change field and then go into a field that I knew I would be more passionate about. Yeah. So aside from reading the book, that was one of the other deciding factors yeah. that had you switch. All things said and done, that's not really a huge switch in fields, right? No, not, it's not, not really. going from neuroscience to like physics or something. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. so did you find was that transition easy? Was it difficult? I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. I'm sure there is overlap, and actually, you know, neuroscience is one of those funny fields where it's it it can be quite multidisciplinary and, um you know, some mechanism that works in one part of the brain will also potentially work in another part of the brain. There's actually work that's being done now by teams at MIT and other places too that are showing that using brain rhythms, you can um, alleviate using brain rhythms applied through visual stimulation, basically flashing light at a particular frequency, you can alleviate certain uh, symptoms and um, telltale signs of Alzheimer's disease. So you, so so maybe that's like 
you know, a perfect marriage between the visual system and the, the hippocampal field. So there is overlap and I'm hoping that definitely in the future I can marry different types of my training um, into future research directions and things like that. But it wasn't easy, you know, because, you know, as a graduate student, you're, you, you're somewhat comfortable being in this one field, right? And you like soak up all the knowledge or whatever, you know, uh, in that field. And then as a postdoc, and you're, you know, as a graduate student, you're allowed some uh, level of, you know, you're a student, so it's okay if you don't know something or, you know, you're still learning. Um, but then as a postdoc, there's kind of a different expectation. It's like, you know, you're like supposed to get the hit the ground running and start publishing or something, or, you know, you're not supposed to be all that of a beginner, but I was, you know, like in the new field of neuroscience, I was in the visual field, but that was actually really exciting. And I was given a lot of freedom to dictate what I did with my day <laughs> uh, during those first years of my postdoc. And so I actually read, you know, basic vision books and, you know, learned as much as I wanted to about amblyopia. And so, yeah, that was actually really exciting. And I think in some ways, if you've been in the same field for a very long time, you get kind of entrenched in very traditional thought of, of that field because you've read so much. You've read too many papers, one too many papers saying that something is true, you know. And so maybe coming in with a fresh pair of eyes might have helped me see or ask questions, you know, that other people that have been in the vision field for a long time might not have asked. So this particular question that I was wondering about, about whether thalamus might be the origin of problems for amblyopia is something that has been entrenched in the field of amblyopia for decades. You know, Hubel and Wiesel in the 50s showed that there's nothing wrong at the level of the thalamus. Thalamus is fine <laughs> in these amblyopic animals. So it's sort of written into medical textbooks. And even to this day, it's taught at undergrad neuroscience, you know, uh, courses that if you deprive one eye of visual input during a critical period of your visual development, you will have problems at the level of the visual cortex, but not before, you know, thalamus is fine. But what I'm showing is that thalamus is not fine. So you have visual uh, uh, binocular vision problems occurring already at the level of the thalamus, which is the relay between the eye and the visual cortex. So maybe it's, it's, it was okay that I changed field and thought about things from a different point of view. <laughs> yeah. So there's two directions I'd like to take this conversation. But before we do that, uh, I realize I never asked you, like, so what is your position currently? What has been mm. your trajectory through, I guess, graduate life? Because you're not a graduate student now, right? Right. So I'm a project scientist uh, at uh, UC Irvine. So at UC, in the UC system, and I think maybe in other universities too, you're only supposed to be able to be a postdoctoral fellow for the first five years after your PhD. 
which for the audience listening, postdocs are for when you go through grad school, you get your PhD and you decided, hey, I didn't have enough of that fun. And I say the fun very loosely in this context, uh, and you go back, essentially. And like you said, there's this expectation, oh, yeah, you've already done the science thing, and you should be able to hit the ground running, which is why mm-hmm. a lot of lives will take on postdocs. And it's mm-hmm. generally one of the stepping stones you take to get into a proper academic career. And I say proper in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so before you can run a lab, or you know, become the director of a lab and become a professor at a university, at a research-intensive university. They think that you need a lot more training than what you got during your PhD. So you do this postdoctoral training, which is basically like a graduate student <laughs> uh, working under uh, a professor in their lab and doing research. But you know, now you don't have to take any classes, right? So you can just be. Hundred percent devoting your time to research, so theoretically you should be more productive than a graduate student, right? Um, so um, after about five years of that, um, you have to change title, at least in the UC system, to become project scientist. Um, so it's considered sort of an interesting transitory. Like period between before you can become a professor on your own, um, and but you've done enough postdoc training. So so basically, what I where what I'm doing, where I am at right now is, I am applying for faculty positions. Actually, there's a bunch of faculty openings that have a deadline today. I should oh. apply for some of those jobs. <laughs> December 1st. <laughs> well, uh, um, thank you for coming, but <laughs> god damn. Get back to work. It's okay. <laughs> I've already done a bunch okay, of good, work. Okay, so. good, good, good. I'm glad. Um, so yeah, I mean, and this is my second cycle of applying. So basically, last cycle. So it comes around every fall, this faculty position openings usually you know, on-cycle places, it usually comes around every fall. And then, so they advertise, and then the uh, deadlines are like, you know, typically October, November, December. And so you apply, and then, you know, your applications go out into the void. <laughs> Often you, you don't hear anything back. Avoid, but some yes. places invite you back for Skype interviews, uh, also, and then followed by, you know, in, on-site interviews. So I went on, you know, like a handful of on-site interviews last cycle. Uh, I, um, that was very interesting experience. Um, cause you spend like a couple of days on campus, um, and you give a talk and then the next day you give a chalk talk, but you know, your day is peppered with like million meetings with different people. Um, and they all try to be at their best behavior and smile a lot and <laughs> ah, yes. try to recruit you, right? But so that's kind of interesting um, uh, experience. Um, but none of the places that I uh, ended up on-site interviewing at actually panned out into offers. So I am trying again this cycle, but I feel like I'm like more prepared and I kind of know much more what to expect. So hopefully something good will happen. <laughs> Best of luck to you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. That being said, the first question I wanted to ask is that now that you transitioned to a different field, mm-hmm. 
because that way you can get your hands dirty, so to speak. Do you feel like it's mission accomplished in that sense? Do you feel um, you wanted something that's maybe a little bit more directly applicable to something? Um, do you feel that was the right choice? Yeah, I definitely do feel like it was the right choice. Um, you know, we talk about grad school being hard, you know, and postdoc years definitely hasn't been easy. But I'm really glad that I chose the path that I chose um, because it really shows, right? You know, you talk to graduate students that that hate what they do versus graduate students that like what they do, right? The, the amount of enthusiasm that they show um, in talking about their work is completely different, right? And, and, you, and, you know, you talk to any professor, you know, talking about their work, they're always like bubbly and enthusiastic and really happy, right? Because that's like the only way they would have gotten, got to that stage of getting their job and setting up their lab and training all those people as if they themselves are really interested um, in the work that they do. So, so I'm really, I really stress that, like whenever I talk to people about, you know, potential academic careers or potential labs to join, like, you know, don't look at anything else, but like if, you know, if, if there was nothing else going on, but just you, you know, going to the lab day in, day out, like, would you like what you're doing? You know, if the answer is, and would you like the people that you would be working with? You know, if the answer is yes, then, then that's like a very strong indication that you're, you've made the right choice. And, you know, I have had various ups and downs. You know, I had, I had a very good PhD, um, under a very caring and, you know, kind of, uh, what's the word? I don't know. Like it's kind of a fatherly figure, right? Like, so my PhD mentor has always sort of like looked out for me and sort of, I felt very protected in a way, uh, in, in, in that environment. But at the same time, he allowed me a lot of freedom to grow and write my own papers and choose my own projects. So I feel like I had a lot of, uh, luck, you know, being in an environment where I could grow as a scientist in a relatively supported and, um, you know, protected environment. Um, there's been various, you know, other instances, you know, like this is my third sort of postdoctoral lab, meaning, you know, I did two previous postdoctoral training um, in two other labs before. And it's really important to find the mentor that will really champion you, you know, like, because that's the only way you're going to shine enough that you're going to land that lucre, that, that, you know, elusive faculty position is if you look like you are in a very secure place and doing really productive and interesting work. So if you look like you're suffering and <laughs> you know, miserable, then that's not going to happen. If you look like you're not enjoying that, that particular project you're doing, then that, that's not going to work, right? So, so I think it's, it's really impo important to find the right topic for sure, but also the right environment, 
Yeah, certainly it's a common theme amongst a lot of the other previous interviewees so far that it really is important to make sure you can fit into a lab, make sure you can do work you're getting behind, yeah, and stuff like that. Um, though I will personally add, because I had to learn this, mm-hmm. that because um, I work in I, my my research was in nuclear fuel, yeah, and uh, not a lot of people are up for that too. There's like that. There's also that external factor of like, hey, you're doing good work. You th- at least you think so. You enjoy your work. And then there's like these external forces that kind of like want to shut you down. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what I feel, feel like I had to endure. Yeah. But, um, but definitely you're right though. It is important to, to be around scientists, like-minded scientists, mm-hmm. like-minded in the sense that they are also enjoying the work that they're doing. Yeah. And perhaps maybe they feel the same sort they feel the same source of uh demoralization but at the very least you know the work is good mm-hmm. at the very least yeah made me think about that so i remember back when we were uh preparing for your bruise and brains talk that you had a personal question uh, personal connection to this topic of research Could you mind elaborating on that for us yeah so you know full closure Full disclosure, I have amblyopia. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I changed fields and I was very excited by the, you know, Susan Berry's book and by the potential to treat amblyopia in adults was because I have amblyopia and I've never been able to see in 3D in my life. So, you know, those magic eye things or 3D movies don't work on me. Um, and... I don't know to what extent, you know, it impacts my everyday life because I'm able to do brain surgery on the mouse with just one eye. Fine. <laughs> um, you drove here. I drove here. You're alive. <laughs> I parked without yeah. bumping into other cars. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so basically what is going on is that my eye... Um, when I was little, um, was had a, had a strabismus, so my left eye was slightly outwardly turned. Um, so, you know, basically the brain is faced. My brain was faced with the you know challenge of okay, what do I do? Right, either I choose to see through both and have double vision because they're not pointed in the right in the same direction, or I just ignore input coming from one of those eyes and. So my brain decided to just suppress input or, you know, not develop pathways from the, the, the weaker eye. And another thing about my amblyopia is that not only did I have strabismus, but also uh, a very high level of um, anisometropia, which is uh, basically a condition where you have very different optical uh, prescriptions that you need between the two eyes. So with my good eye, I basically need very little to see 2020. So I need like minus 0.5 prescription. Um, and growing up, I basically never corrected my bad eye um, because that eye would need the prescription of plus six. And so rather than giving me this very uh, lopsided looking, you know, <laughs> pair of glasses, I guess they decided to just 
you know, put the same lens in the weak eye as the right eye or something like that, or just put no prescription in that eye. So what I'm finding actually is that there is this thing called refractive therapy. So you, so um, in cases like me where I, I have left my bad eye to be uh, not optically corrected so for so long, right? So for vast majority of my life, basically, um, my, my weak eye was not uh, providing, what was not being provided with the right optical power. So I was always getting blurry images through the weak eye. And on top of that, I have, I had strabismus and amblyopia. So it's no wonder that, that, that my amblyopia got to be pretty deep. Um, so uh, what I started doing actually in the last, I think six months or so, um, I went in for a regular checkup at the optometrist. And, um, since, my good eye didn't change in its prescription. I didn't need to get a new pair of glasses. So I asked for uh, contact lenses for my amblyopic eye to finally correct it, correct it um, appropriately optically, right? So I would be putting in plus, you know, almost six, you know, power uh, contact lenses. That's a in pretty my, hefty lens. Yeah. In my amblyopic eye. And then I would just be wearing normal glasses that I, that I usually do. And lo and behold, I found that I went in for kind of like a recheckup, like one week after I started wearing my contact lenses and my vision improved in my amblyopic eye. So why didn't I do this before when my brain was more plastic? <laughs> I'm like, you know, my, my late thirties, maybe if I was doing this refractive therapy earlier, you know, it would have been so much better. Um, maybe I would, I would be, you know, not, you know, my amblyopia is pretty deep. Like basically, you know, I can bear, I can basically see the biggest letter on the eye chart basically with my amblyopic eye. So, but maybe with this refractive therapy, with the contact lens in all the time, Maybe it will keep improving. Maybe I'll get up to like 2100 or something like that one day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting because the field has been entrenched so much with this sort of this, um, you know, this concept that plasticity window closes at the age of eight that we've left all these adult amblyopes walking around without any therapy, but Really, maybe what you need is the right prescription <laughs> for both eyes. And maybe you can retrain the brain, you know, using different methods. You know, um, uh, um, in recent years, people have experimented with, you know, at least in the experimental settings, uh, different types of uh, pharma pharmacological agents to increase plasticity in the brain, for example. So maybe combining all methods together maybe you can be wearing the right contact lenses you know and providing some uh some you know drugs to increase plasticity and on top of that maybe play like action video games with your amblyopic eye or with both eyes open um with the appropriate you know kind of simulation maybe you would have a much better chance of 
teaching the brain to use the two eyes together again and recover 3D vision. So I'm hoping that one day that would happen, that we would have a cure for amblyopia at, at any age, not just before age of eight. That leads to a unrelated question uh, <laughs> that I'm very curious about. So when you do visit the optometrist, how does that go now that you know what you know about the eye? Do you like have the urge sometimes to go like your doctor says something and you're like things just nah nah bitch like what are you talking about like just give me my contacts damn you like how does that go? <laughs> so that actually came about because you know I went to the University Optometric Center and and for some reason they keep changing doctors on me. So one time I uh, visited there was this. Uh, older gentleman optometrist guy that used to also do research at UCI. And he was the one that was curious enough to offer me, hey, do you want to just like put these on and see what happens? You know, like the contact contact lenses over your amblyopic eye and see what happened. You know, I was like, sure, I've never worn contact lenses before. So you're going to have to put it in for me, but okay, I'll try. And so I put it on and it was like instant I didn't know like how to describe it. Basically, it's like, you know how like you open your eyes and there's like sparkles? <laughs> I don't know. It was like this weird sensation. Like I didn't know that the, my brain was paying attention to anything my amblyopic eye saw. I mean, of course, the eyes open and, you know, I see blurry motion and color through that eye. But I didn't know that like providing the right correction would do anything but it did like things looked so different that i just felt so different that i i was like hey like did you put any any drugs in there? <laughs> <laughs> like is there any medication on this contact lens i was like okay take it off and then so he took it out and then things immediately went back to normal. I was like, oh, that was a very interesting experience. But he couldn't prescribe me the contact lenses at the time because you couldn't like choose one or the other. You had to like choose glasses or, you know, or contact lens. So um, so when I went back, I kind of, I, I got to see another optometrist and I kind of suggested to her that, hey, we tried this last time and it was interesting and I'd like to try that, you know, like, for real this time like wear it every day and and she was actually pretty open to the idea she was like oh well maybe it will help yeah you never know you know let's try it and then since i was amblyopic i think she was able to write like medically necessary on the <laughs> prescription for the contact lens nice. so 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 yeah i think it's interesting yeah when i tell people tell optometrists like hey yeah i work on amblyopia they're like oh that's really cool you know they they I haven't met anyone that were like, you know, intimidated or like, you know, fighting with me on things. Um, so yeah, it's 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 usually a mutual respect. I think <laughs> the the university healthcare yeah is um unique. Yeah, in that maybe. Way. Yeah. I think yeah yeah because I don't see that going well everywhere mm. at all. Yeah. In fact, like because um they they really do do a good job at hiring the right sorts of doctors yeah i've noticed yeah um because i've had to use it extensively oh, okay yeah. um not just for my eyes cause yeah i injure myself all sorts of ways all the time oh, okay um <laughs> a story for another day um 
But yeah, they, they do do a good job here. And yeah. our insurance is actually spectacularly expensive. So oh, they yeah. damn well better do a good job, <laughs> you know. Um, not that I guess we're paying for it. Someone's paying for it. Right. And yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I'm yeah. really glad yeah, that Yeah, I'm from out. Canada. So yeah. Oh. Like, healthcare, you have to pay for what? Like... <laughs> Well, it's not deducted out of the, the high tax rate you guys are paying already. What are you talking about? <laughs> right, it's not. Uh, Welcome to the United States. Yes. Because you have am- amblyopia, amblyopia, I'll get mm-hmm. it one of these days. Do you feel like having that personal connection really helped get you into your research? Do you think that empowered you significantly? Yeah. Um, definitely. I mean, you know, I, I, every basically waking moment, I close my good eye and I immediately experience what it's like, you know, to view the world through my impoverished amblyopic eye pathways, you know? (laughs) And so that's, I think that's kind of the beauty of the visual system is like, you know, you immediately experience the result of all of the your brain your brain working for you you know and so i i think i found the right place that i want to be in the brain i knew i always wanted to be a neuroscientist um even when i was like middle school high school i wanted to be either a neuroscientist or an astronaut <laughs> but like Probably being amblyopic, I probably couldn't be a, like a legit astronaut. Um, I'll fail the sight test. But anyway, um, so the draw for me personally, like wanting to study the brain sort of comes from this, you know, basically all of our experiences other than the thoughts bouncing in around your head are generated by you know, information or stimuli hitting those receptors that you interface through the outside world through those receptors. So, you know, it's like the matrix. <laughs> I don't know, youngsters nowadays don't know that reference. <laughs> oh, it's a classic movie. I hope they do. <laughs> you know, you could be sitting in some dark, you know, capsule with all of your receptors connected to something. And then, you know, we could be just experiencing things that are provided to us through those receptors, thinking that there is reality out there, but there really isn't, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) So I've always wanted to understand like how it is basically the brain generates this internal representation of the world out there. And vision really is like a really rich kind of, you know, sensory system to study for that that exact purpose. And it's also very attractive when you're doing an experiment and you're looking into the mouse's brain and there are cells firing. And then what the mouse is seeing basically is in, entirely in sync with what the cells are firing, you know, in time. So it's very satisfying to see that. So you can study all kinds of things like how, you know, correlated are the cells firing in response to that same visual stimulus and how reliable that is over time and how fast it is, how slow it is. And definitely, you know, knowing and having interacted with other people with amblyopia or other visual uh, disorders, you know, it, 
it it's motivating, you know. And as people, we rely so heavily on our sense of sight, right? So I think it's it's very important um, and and kind of easy to to relay the importance of what you do when people understand. People can easily understand what you do. You know what I mean? So so yeah, I think it's it's good. Do you often have the opportunity to search outside of your field to kind of get at these, I guess, much grander, more philosophical questions about the the nature of our experience? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, that's a very deep question. <laughs> Right, because because you were uh, you were touching on that a little bit yeah, there. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was an undergrad and volunteering and also working as a research assistant in a um, human psychology lab, I you know interacted a lot with the professor there, Lawrence Ward at UBC, and we talked a lot about consciousness and different theories there are out there about you know different. What, you know, consciousness is one of those things. It's like people need to first agree on what they mean by it. <laughs> it's like, do you mean the conscious experience or free will or, you know, there's all kinds of different weird things that we can mean by consciousness. But anyways, um, I liked that part of um, neuroscience, like, you know, the ability to sort of draw links between sort of our conscious experiences, sort of the more philosophical, you know, side of our, you know, uh, understanding of our mind to just looking at the mechanisms of the brain as if it's a machine, right? And, um, you know, to be honest, I don't get to have these dis- discussions often, Um because our now, I mean, uh, because our field as a neuroscience has become very granular, and you know, even people that are working on the visual system in the brain don't, you know, sufficiently talk to people that are working on the eye, for example. Like we all have our little niche expertise and we don't talk to each other. <laughs> I guess that comes with um, when people are entrenched in what they're doing. It seems yeah. to be a symptom. But you know, more of more of those interdisciplinary or more of those, you know, interactions have to happen, you know, and and the field is moving in that direction a little bit, you know. Um, nowadays funding is easier to get if you collaborate more widely across different disciplines. Um, and so, like, definitely, you know, more of these interactions have to happen. It's just everybody's so busy, it seems, that, you know, I, I tried so hard to, like, find computational people to work with me on my data, for example, and it's really hard to find the right collaborator. You know, you know when I was talking about my PhD work, I was looking at very mechanistic, fundamental kind of operations of the brain in terms of which cells and which circuits give rise to theta rhythms, right? So there, I had very fruitful um, collaborations with uh, uh, computational modelers that were over at University of Toronto, and we had 
like several papers come out of that work where I just supplied the physiological data and they built, you know, cellular and network models based on it. But in a way, it was sort of like very modular in in that you know they would publish they published you know computational papers based on my data, and then I published physiological data with using some of their code, but it was never an integrated project where all of that work was interdisciplinary. You know, it was like we never had a one big paper where we had like physiology and computational models together. Right, and I um, imagine they were published in different journals too. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of like a fruitful collaboration and it led to intellectual, you know, growth. But at the same time, it could have been like so much better if we like, you know, really, really like, you know, integrated everything together into a single kind of frame of mind. Um, so I feel like, the field is moving slowly to be more bringing in more computational methods as well. Um, because nowadays it's like, you know, I'm talking about physiology in the large scale, right? You've got recordings from hundreds, if not thousands of neurons, you know, acquired at the same time um, when the mouse is doing a particular behavior, let's say, and then, you know, there's so much wealth of data there that, you know, just straight up physiology techniques of just looking at firing rate, you know, will only tell you a little bit about the story. But if you could um, kind of engage some of the more sophisticated computational methods, I'm sure there's like a lot more insight we could gather. And there, it's definitely going in that direction, the field. Um, there are... Um, brain initiative awards that are given to people that are explicitly, you know, uh, proposing to do computational work at the same time that they're doing physiology work. So um, I think definitely it's in, moving in the right direction. Um, I really want to do that type of work myself. Um, but like I said, there are, you know, limitations as to unless you're like, a well-known figure in the field and you're considered important. <laughs> you know, it's hard for you to find collaborators, you know, as a junior re researcher. You know, I like I said, I tried a lot to reach out to people and, you know, it, it often is met with like, oh, let's meet. And then, oh, why don't you meet with my postdoc? And then the postdoc is even too, too busy. So the postdoc is like, hey, why don't you meet with the graduate student? You know, like just like get more and more degraded down in their priority list. And then you're like, oh, it's like, why did I waste my time? Like, you know, meeting with them so many times if nothing was going to happen in the end. Um, so I think it just like really requires, I think one day for me to like really, you know, be lucky you know, for one thing, like meet the right collaborator um, that will work with my data. And also maybe if I have a higher standing in the field, then people would just, computational people would just come to me, you know. That'd be the I dream. I want to work with your data, please. <laughs> That's the dream for sure. But I would also assert too, maybe there's an element of like, yeah. nah, bitch, this is good work. We should get to work in there too, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, it's weird. In some ways, I think um, to be completely fair, there's like it, it is hard 
Mm-hmm. Science is hard. Yeah. And it becomes granular for a reason. Yeah. As we picking away, picking away at the tree of knowledge, there's, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, go higher up the tree and that takes more work. Yeah. But that's what we're about and we do that work. But if we're still kind of, you know, using, you know, lower end of the tree techniques, it's going to, you're not mm-hmm. going to, you're not going to get there. Right. And I get that. And you'll never hear me complain about uh, having more computational people involved in anything. Because that's oh. my jam. Uh, you that's mean you entirely would, my jam. You would not want? or you Oh, would I would want never more. complain about that happening. Oh, okay. Because that is my thing. Oh. Making sure that happens is my thing. Okay. I think, because really what's holding people back from proper collaboration is the way they think. Mm-hmm. has nothing really to do with the science. The science is hard, mm-hmm. sure, but things are hard and we figure out how to do that. That's yeah. something yeah. being hard is not the problem. Yeah. And the problem is like committing to solving a problem. That's yes. the real problem yes. to yeah. any problem. Well, there's a lot of problems. <laughs> right. What do you mean by like you you are the person that wants to make sure that happens? What do you mean? Like- um, Because... Uh, well, again, like I'm a computational guy. Mm-hmm. I see when I hear of problems, mm-hmm. my brain instantly goes to, hey, can we model that somehow? Mm-hmm. Because that's how I understand things. Right. Um, until I get to the act of modeling something, I don't really truly understand it. Because then you got to have to mm-hmm. like really work out the details. And it's something like, you know how some people say the act of writing notes mm-hmm. helps you retain more information? Yeah. It's almost like that for me. The act Mm. of, like, sitting down and coding something helps me learn the mechanics Mm. in ways that, like, you know, um, because maybe I just enjoy the work. Right. And I'd rather do something like that, aside from, like, doing homework or something, to learn something, you know? (laughs) Well, there is a side project for you if you ever want to do computational modeling with me. (laughs) That sound is me wringing my hands. You guys can't see this because it's a podcast and it's a visual. uh, It's an audio format it's an audio thing (laughs) there's no visual here but yes we'll have to keep in touch okay so yeah i've given like 20 talks in the last like five years Mm. (laughs) including all the job interviews and everything yeah so that definitely you know that is something we don't teach scientists right like during our training is you know we don't teach communication skills Enough, I think. We, yeah. Oh. You know. Do I... Oh. Do <laughs> I have so many complaints about that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I would like to hijack this opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about something that bothers me very profoundly Okay. about the field of science communication. If you've ever gone through the list of people I've interviewed so far, yeah, uh, you'll notice that they're all women. Mm-hmm. You've noticed this, yes? Yes. Have you? Uh... There are, as of the moment we're recording, it's all women that's been uploaded. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two dudes mm-hmm. who are uh, who are in the backlog who will be airing soon. Mm-hmm. And the thing about science communication is that it's very much a, uh, a woman-dominated regime area. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that. I'm happy that it's running. I don't care anything in particular is run by women. It's not. That's not. That's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at is. The reality is that most of STEM is filled with dudes. Mm-hmm. This work of communicating your research in a succinct manner, mm. I believe that we are all responsible to do that with our own work. Yeah. So that means there's only chicks 
in science communication, and there are no dudes, but there are more dudes in science. What dudes, you're, my boys, <laughs> lads, <laughs> y'all are y'all are slacking. What are you doing? Y'all are slacking. Well, there are some notable TV personalities, right? That are dudes that are in science communication. David Suzuki in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he does any more shows nowadays, but there are also other people. I don't know celebrity names. I'm sorry. So, uh. <laughs> so okay. I used to run Bruise and Brains, right? Yeah. I, don't I don't remember if I actually talked about that in the show or not. Mm -hmm. But it was a um, professional development program yeah. that um, I helped run for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I helped turn it into a professional development program at UCI. And um, we would invite graduate students every two weeks to give talks. You, you were one of those yeah. graduate student postdocs at the time yeah. that gave a talk. And you're supposed to, it's like a 10-minute thing. You give it to like a general audience. So everyone's like, you know, there's beer involved. That's just a good time. It's a very casual environment. There, I think we've had like in the four years that I helped run it, mm -hmm. I think we've had like six dudes give talks. Really? Yeah. What? Go to our YouTube channel. Shameless plug. <laughs> Bruising Brains YouTube <laughs> channel. Uh, which I totally didn't help maintain. And, you know, a lot of those videos uh, I didn't upload myself. Do you think it's being because, sarcastic. like, they're shyer to speak in public? I don't understand. I have, I'm, I'm very surprised so, by that number. Like, really? Yeah. Um, I think it's that way for the same reason it's female-dominated. Hmm. For the same reason. Um, so... One of the common themes about people going into science communication that I've noticed is that there's often a sense of despair about one's own work. That mm -hmm. the work that they're doing, no matter how important they feel it is, there's something about it being in the public domain that's like kind of like, mm. they know it's not going to be well received. Mm -hmm. For example, my line of because this is how I, this is exactly how I felt in my line of work. Mm-hmm. Because I, like I said, I work in nuclear energy. Yeah. Nuclear, anything is not popular. You mm -hmm. say the word nuclear, let people go like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, which, which is why we call um, MRI, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, the fancy thing mm -hmm. uh, where we can image your brain. You get put into a tube. There's a lot of mm -hmm. powerful magnets involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh, nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. Mm. That's... Uh, oh, really? You know, right, because oh. you're, you're, um, what you're doing is you are sending magnetic pulses to shift the orientation of nuclei. Right. It's nuclear stuff. Right. Nuclear meaning we're dealing with the nucleus of an atom. <laughs> but people hear nuclear right. and they freak the fuck out. Yeah. And they're like, don't put me in that radioactive tin right. can. Right. Mm. And that's, that's why we call it MRI. Mm. We dropped the N from mm -hmm. the, you know, the nuclear oh, magnetic resonance okay. imaging. Mm -hmm. That's why, that's the story behind that. Mm -hmm. But that is what it is. You are dealing with the nucleus of atoms in your body. Yeah. Has nothing to do with nuclear power or bombs. Right. But here we are right. today. So now I tell you this anecdote because that's kind of the state of nuclear anything here, mm -hmm. right? And now you, I'm like a nuclear energy researcher. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I can't help but feel like there is zero place for my work in the world and mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the science. Mm -hmm. Zero to do with the science, in fact. It has everything to do with public perception. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of people that I know 
that have come through science communication. Um, a few of them we have interviewed, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, particularly noteworthy is uh, Kelly, episode five, I believe. Also, shameless plug, cough, cough. <laughs> that, um, yeah, and that was the thing. Like, the public doesn't care. Policymakers don't care. They're like almost, if may possibly even hostile to the idea of it. Oh, was she also in nuclear? She was uh, toxicology. Okay. Yeah. So examining pollutants, how are they bad for you? Why are they bad for you? Perhaps maybe we should not put them in the air because they're bad for people. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. unpopular ideas in America. (laughs) Extremely unpopular ideas in America. Well, I think these things still get funded, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, we're doing that research. It's something. Yeah. It's I mean, something. nuclear physics still getting funded. Right. I mean... I mean, yeah. If you look at the bright side of that, true. Uh, we still care. But why do you care so care. much that it's unpopular in public so, opinion? If it's still getting funded I, and if it's good science still, right? Ah, so here's the thing. So in we are in the midst of a climate crisis. Mm-hmm. We would like to transition out of fossil fuels mm-hmm. uh, into, I guess, more carbon-neutral sources of power. Yeah. Uh, and then I hear things like, oh, uh, Germany is going to commit to fully renewable power by 2038. Wonderful news. Also, we're going to shut down all of our nuclear power plants like overnight. And then that makes me go, hold on. So you guys are expecting to bring up all these offshore wind farms? Uh, can they even do offshore? Okay, look at you're trying to get up these mm-hmm. wind farms. You're gonna to try to get up these solar panel, like you know, solar mm-hmm. farms and stuff like that, and like geothermal plants at the same time. You're not. That's not gonna happen. And then so what happened? They like opened up a bunch of new coal mines instead because mm. you need that power. If you uh-huh. shut off a bunch of capacity, you gotta replace it with something else, and they replace it with coal. Because so is nuclear if you're not gonna... energy not like more carbon neutral than? It's like... way more carbon. It is right. the it has the lowest carbon footprint. Yeah. So why are of they even solar and wind power? So it's quite green. So why are they shutting that down? Because it's nuclear power. Because it's radioactive not stuff. Oh. Yeah. People, mm. you know, think mm. you live next to it, you'll get cancer. Right. Right. I mean, as long mm. as you're not putting that stuff into the air you mm-hmm. won't get cancer so what what does this have to do with science communication right again <laughs> i gotta i'm uh i'm going nuts here okay I'm, I'm ranting a bit okay so yeah yeah the idea is that you see all this stuff you see how your work can benefit mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. and that's a big reason why i went into science to begin right. with and i wouldn't and no matter how much i enjoyed my subject i wouldn't stay in it if i didn't see a tangible benefit Right. Um, for I would, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm suited for purely theoretical pursuits. Some mm-hmm. people are good for them. Mm-hmm. I respect that a lot, in fact, and I wish I was, but I'm that's not, I'm not smart enough for that. So then when you realize that all these ideas are not going to be implemented, right? Ideas like, hey, let's not put all sorts of ranch chained organic hydrocarbons in the air so that people don't breathe it. Mm-hmm. And that way, you, you know, you'll have healthier babies. Mm-hmm. And you say you say that, and then people will say, like, and the policymakers will say, we're not going to do that at all. We're not going to do that. You know, it's like, well, mm. what the hell, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then you have to bump up against this sort of despair 
And it's like, well, what do you do? Like, mm -hmm. your research can help people, but it's not going to. It's just not going to. But, you know, some researchers don't despair about that. Really? Yeah. I think they just keep going. I mean, who cares what... I mean, yeah, I mean, hopefully your public will see the value in what you do, but even if they don't, you know, you can you can always spin, right? You can always spin your research to be about something that funding agencies care about. And then if you can continue to just fund your research and keep doing the science that you love, then some people don't care that much about the public opinion. So maybe do you think that it's people that are more outwardly looking towards what public thinks that that go into science communication um is that what you're perhaps uh, mm, that wasn't explicitly what i was going to kind of mention but now that you mentioned yeah perhaps that's an element to it mm -hmm. i was going to say more that um the value of the science that you were doing mm -hmm. you're not deriving it your intention wasn't to derive it explicitly from your work. It was to derive it from the value it could do for other people. Mm -hmm. um, and you realize for people reasons, yeah. not science reasons, that's not going to do that. Then you have to start looking elsewhere to get that sort of higher, like that fulfillment I in your see. work. And then mm -hmm. so a lot of people are drawn to science communication to right. chew on ideas and um, process them for the public to right. better understand and perhaps right. you hope that maybe we can make more informed policy decisions right. and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, maybe we can all agree to like, you know, let's uh, have healthier babies. Yeah. You know, which is a, a contentious, mm -hmm. contentious uh, debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, it seems like in the case of that, you know, the work of that speaker that you had here about the toxicology stuff, um, it's actually kind of amazing that based on the finding that she has from her studies, like you can immediately see translatable, you know, outcome, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's often kind of what I'm saying is that's often not the case in my line of work. It's right. not often that you can like turn around right after you found something and here, here's what we can try to alleviate this problem, you right. know? Um, so there is sort of this like built in gap between the immediate product of your work, which is a publication or a conference mm -hmm. presentation or something, or maybe even a media, you know, yeah. outlet such as this one, you know, podcasts and, you know, other interviews and things like that to actually having policy changes made based mm -hmm. on your work. So I think a lot of scientists are comfortable with sort of, I mean, maybe this is sort of you know, not very good attitude to have, but kind of comfortable with the fact that, oh, it's going to take years before what I do makes a real difference in the world. You know what I mean? I think that's a coping mechanism. Yeah. I'm and not so, sure if they're actually comfortable. They really examine themselves. <laughs> I personally. don't think, I don't know that people hold themselves up to that type of standard that you hold yourself up to. Yeah. You know, like, what difference does my work actually make? Yeah. You know, as long as I feel like I'm making a contribution and I'm doing solid work and 
you know, shedding light on some unknown, previously unknown mechanism or another, I feel like I'm making a contribution. It doesn't have to be that tomorrow I have a cure, you know? And that in itself is an objective good. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. But But I I guess it's sort of similar to what you were saying earlier about some people are okay with just working in the theoretical realm, you know? Like, it's like, oh, I'm just contributing to the knowledge. And so... One day, this is all going to benefit the greater good in some way, but I don't, it doesn't have to be in the form of a policy change right. next month, you know? Well, it's, I guess, I go, yeah, I guess everything we do is a coping mechanism, right? Um, <laughs> this is what I'm kind of getting it's at. It's a reactive way of... <laughs> I mean, we have to, yeah. yes and no, right? We, we can only react to the world. Mm-hmm. But we can choose what we do, right? Mm-hmm. But I guess the reality of the world that was we are subject to the forces of nature. Yeah. And we are governed by the forces of nature. Yeah. At least I believe we are. Um, mm-hmm. Deterministic. Not de- Determinable is not the same as deterministic. Mm-hmm. I got to be very cautious about that. Not not saying the same thing. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is more like, yeah, that sort of high-level theoretical work mm-hmm. is, I think... Um, the highest good in terms of science because that does the most to open up uh, different branches of new science mm-hmm. to like really understand like what are the basic basic operating principles of the universe yeah and that is the because that is the fundamental basis for everything we do right. all of us right. right so I think that is the highest good mm-hmm. I don't do it because I'm not smart enough <laughs> um, so then I cope and I try to go into more granular things mm-hmm. um i use computers to do my math for me because i'm not doing any of that math you know i'm smart enough to tell computer how to do it but do it yeah. my, no, I'm, but I'm you're not smart enough it. to digest what specialists you know in their very small niches do in terms of what you know the general public can understand yeah. i think that's a different type of smart i guess so. and i think it's like maybe what you were getting at earlier with you know, why is, you know, STEM fields are dominated by you know, just as many men as women yet, you know, maybe more men than women in some cases. In but, some fields, yes. But, you know, science communication is, you know, mostly dominated by women. Why is that? Maybe that has something to do with women being more, like valuing more of the communication part of science. Perhaps. Maybe men don't, you know, like either they are shy or <laughs> don't put this in the podcast. <laughs> uh, dudes, dudes are shy. No, or no, dudes are shy. They're not as comfortable, or maybe they're afraid they're gonna say something that's gonna, you know, like imp- not. You know what I mean? Like I they're afraid saying. of like shooting themselves in the foot or something by saying something in the public. Um, um, maybe I have a more cynical view. Perhaps um, they're more. Uh, there's a tendency with dudes, and I would know because I'm a dude because I have the same tendency <laughs> to just kind of in, like entrench yourself into your work. And yeah, just, yeah. Just and not work. care as much, right? Yeah. Like what? Like yeah, why yeah, yeah. should I have to break it down for the general public or oh, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. put this in the podcast. <laughs> But, but yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I was like, when when you invited me for this interview, I was like, 
oh, that's really cool. You know, I'm yeah. going to be on the podcast. That's cool. <laughs> and then, um, and then as the time approached, I was like, oh my God, it's a podcast soon <laughs> coming up, right? Yeah. Am I supposed <laughs> to like think about what I'm going to say? Nah, I'm just going to wing it. <laughs> Good, because that and was then, the entire that's the point. Okay. Yeah, which is, then, that is the point. Yeah. And, but, you know, I think it's kind of funny. I, I kind of have a, developed or maybe I was born with, I don't know, kind of a thick skin. I don't really care um, that much about like, you know, how I'm, I portray myself or how people perceive me. Um, I think as long as I ring true, right? Like yeah. in my personality and, you know, who I am and what I, what I want to do, you know, ring true. I, I don't think I would be judged unfairly, but, but maybe that's just my naivete. Maybe I, I'm with you day. there. No, no, no. I'm with you there. It is unprepared like, comments will bite me. <laughs> no, no. I think that's like yeah. I, I think that's fair. Um, in a lot of ways, I agree with you. It resonates with me quite a bit. That yeah, like who at really mm. cares what people think of you as long as yeah. you stay true to yourself. Yeah, I like am a nihilist through and through. Mm-hmm. I understand. I take that thought and I take it to its logical extreme. Mm-hmm. I understand that why should I care? Because it really won't matter at the end of the day. We are but specks of dust in this nigh-infinite universe. Mm-hmm. It might as well be infinite in comparison to our size. Mm-hmm. You know, what, how, I guess, how true I ring to myself, not even that truly matters at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact what that matters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What matters? The answer is nothing. Like at the Uh-oh. end like at the end of the day. Yeah, and then you take it yeah. to that logical extreme. Yeah. Uh and then that's just kind of how I operate. I'm a nihilist, you know. Um mm-hmm. but it is freeing in its own way. You realize mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh then you are free to create your own uh meaning cuz you know, our left brain is wired exclusive almost ex- exclusively to generate meaning out of our stimulus. So it's going to do that anyway. Sure. So if you let it ring to its, you know, <laughs> if you let it be true to itself, uh-huh. it's, all, it's empowering in its own way. That's mm-hmm. how I look at nihilism. That being said, mm-hmm. I guess kind of because this is where I always go, and I kind of, um, that's kind of always where I end up, that kind of big picture level thing. Mm-hmm. I can't help but imagine things like policy decisions, decisions and stuff like that affecting, mm-hmm. and how does that affect on a larger scale and things like that. That's, right. that's, that's just that's just how I think. Right. Uh, so right. I think about, and I enjoy thinking about that kind no, of stuff. No, I think that's noble, you know? I mean, so. as scientists, we don't, yeah, like I'm saying, you know, I think that's actually unusual for scientists really? to hmm. think about the bigger picture impact things, and I think more of us should do it. You know, more of us should keep the bigger picture in mind and kind of help that guide our work more, you know? Um I think that's valuable. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Despite it not meaning anything, I'll take it close to my heart. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's um. Yeah, this turned into something completely uh, different. Yeah. Different direction. But anyway, dudes, uh, get on this podcast. And I'm not saying that so I could you know quit my day job and do podcasting full time <laughs> and to get more episodes out. I seriously, dudes, like um. I genuinely hope that 
more people are willing to take on the responsibility of explaining their own work. And I, yeah. I could see it. I could see problems of that arising in my in my workplace, in my job. Mm-hmm. Like people, I guess. And I can I can I can really understand the why this happens because you have you're under pressure. You have to meet deadlines. Your bosses are saying this or that. These have to happen. Yeah. Um. Especially if you have a product out, you gotta get this product out, mm-hmm. or else we will all starve to death, and et cetera, et cetera. Not that dramatic, <laughs> I hope. But um, we're gonna have to find new jobs. I don't know what's worse. Uh, going through the process of applications is painful. Anyway, that's um, that was a joke. Uh, of course, starving <laughs> is worse. But if we don't really take the time mm-hmm. to be able to succinctly explain mm. what are we doing, mm-hmm. what what did we find, yeah. how did we find it, all these other people are going to have input to like give it right, yeah. and they also are also will need the tact and the skills to deliver that sort of guidance effectively. Yeah, I mean that's that just hinders an organization mm-hmm. if you're not if. Like, you know, if everyone's just interested in getting their work done. Right. Yeah. But the push is there just to get your work done, hmm. both from, like, a cultural level and, like, a top-down level. That's just how it has to happen, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess that yeah. training to explain your own work and push to explain your own work is important. Yeah. And it's because it's such an easy trap to fall into, and I fall into it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like just the other day, someone told me, hey, could you write up a report on this or this or that? And I'm like, why didn't I do that before? Mm-hmm. Oh, right. It was because I just wanted to get all this done, and I had my head in my lab and just getting this stuff done. Not really contextualizing any of yeah. this stuff and what it means for like what we're trying to develop. Right. Oops. <laughs> I'm a dude. Uh... <laughs> I don't think it's a dude only problem. I You're mean, right. It's but... like you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, it it's um, I think kind of inadvertently I learned how to sort of um, talk about what's important or pick out what's important to to talk about and what's not important to talk about. Like during my PhD, um, because you know, like you're. You have some time freedom during your PhD, but not a lot. You know, you still need to be on, you know, be meeting your goalposts of making progress in your projects. And there's always Society for Neuroscience meeting you want to go to every year. So you want to, you know, get some results by then, you know, (laughs) by poster time. Um, And also, you know, publish papers. So I think just... Science teaches you sort of how to whittle down a large amount of information into kind of bunch of little bite-sized things that would be important to know. And then the next step is to make people care about those bite-sized things, right? So I had this uh, experience of um, taking part in these hackathons uh, put on by uh, an organization, a meetup group actually called Orange County R User Group. My husband co-organizes it, so I, I, you know, take part in it. And I actually love participating in those hackathons because you're given this like set of data and in 24 hours, 
you're supposed to have a presentation based on you know all the steps involved in data exploration, analysis, maybe even some you know some model building, you know some type of um, you know data science skills required to basically glean some insights out of data that you've never seen before, and you have to work in a team mostly of people that you've never met before, and. Yeah, like I kind of realized that I had some skills that were useful <laughs> as a scientist, you know, and it was kind of refreshing to also to look at a set of data that I don't usually look at, you know, and so, yeah, it was kind of exciting and to glean kind of real world insight, for example, into, you know, how does water quality in Orange County affect, you know, uh, like health records or you know, how how does somebody's occupation or age determine, you know, whether they're going to say yes or no to a, like, uh, like a telemarketing campaign. Um, so that kind of, you know, different data sets, you know, than what I'm used to. And then you get a room full of people, you know, usually like four or five people together. And then you all sort of like dig at the data and then try to come up with like the bite-sized thing to say in your five-minute presentation, you know? And so I found that that's actually, that skill is really valuable to develop, you know, you know, whether you inadvertently developed it during your PhD or whether you really like worked at it, you know, through more formal education, things like the, you know, Bruise and Brains a program at UCI, like how, how to communicate those important bits to the general public and have them care about it, you know, have them kind of personally associate with those points you just talked about and have them learn something new. I think that's actually really important, not only as a scientist, but yeah, moving forward, like, you know, if, if anybody wants to transition, you know, into industry careers, um, having that ability really, like, you know, kind of takes you, makes you be able to take advantage of all the training that you've, you've learned as a scientist and make use of that. It's a transferable skill you can use <laughs> that you can put down on your CV yeah, yeah. <laughs> or resume. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, in industry, more than in academia, it's like about establishing trust, right? And reputation, right? And yes. like, how can you vet all these people with all these power and resources to allocate certain amount of resources to your idea, you know, it's going to be all about how to convincingly demonstrate to them, right? Like, I can do this, you know, like, in all these manners that that seem like really reliable and trustworthy to them, right? And you need to be able to establish sort of yourself as like, kind of an area expert in this thing that you've come up with. And, you know, I think, PhD in some ways teaches you that. Have you have you had that experience like at your recent work? Like for example, sort of you know, I don't know how many PhDs you're working with. Maybe you're not working with too many, but like There's a few of us. There's a few. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like when you talk about something, they give you some credit. 
No. Because you have a PhD. <laughs> I think, I, no, everyone yeah. there is nice. Everyone's okay. nice. And uh-huh. we try to uh, support each other mm-hmm. uh, and um, make sure to give, as far as what I've experienced, mm-hmm. at least, um, the, the people I directly work around uh, were definitely nice people. Mm-hmm. We want to get along with each other. Yeah. More than anything. Right. Um, But like trusting and giving sort of rain, like giving over you know, here, like control, right? Like yeah. here, go do that. Yeah. Go do that project that you proposed. Yeah. Or, you I know think, what I mean? The thing about being a startup, mm-hmm. we're too small to not have that. Because mm. by the nature of it, like, I guess there's no... Because um, they were very clear in the interviews that, mm-hmm. hey, you're going to be doing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hierarchy I mean, just, is pretty shallow. Like, yeah. Right. It, okay. it exists. Right. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's, you know, everyone, there's a lot of things going on. Everyone sees everything. Right. A lot of stuff needs to get done. Yeah. And there's no room to, like, hide, I guess. <laughs> and there's it shows in the culture. Do you find bit. it's working in a startup is a little bit like being in academia? I heard that it's, like, just nonstop work if you let it. Oh, yeah. You know. I'm working yeah. overtime most yeah. days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Most days it's overtime, yeah. So how do you balance yourself? Ah, uh, you don't. Not really. No. <laughs> I still haven't oh, figured that boy. out, and I probably won't. Yeah. Um, it's weird. But you like that, it seems. You like. Getting... I don't know what else I would do. <laughs> I'm not sure I like it. I just don't know what else to do with my life. <laughs> not not at all the same. Well, thing. you've got a lot of side projects. Like this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> could be doing um, more of. <laughs> I could be doing more of it. Yeah. Okay. We're about that time to wrap up. So, final question. When you have to stress eat, what is your go-to stress eat? Korean food. Korean food? Hands uh, down. <laughs> why Korean food? Food of my people. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> my okay. mom's yeah. food. I get If you. it was available. But she lives in Vancouver. <laughs> Okay. So, but we're really lucky to be in Irvine because there's all kinds of Korean food and H-Mart is very convenient. H-Mart is close. (laughs) Though I don't, I'm not a fan of the Korean food around here. No? I feel like, yeah, go down to like Garden Grove or to be like really good. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm too lazy to to travel too far. Yeah. But have you tried Chan Chan? This place that makes like, like, it's like street food like korean street food how is it it's good okay yeah it's like good proportion to price (laughs) i didn't realize you're korean ratio yeah oh yeah so yeah i mean but my husband is vegetarian and he has british taste buds so i have to sometimes when i'm having cravings Ah, convince others unfortunate souls <laughs> hey let's go have some korean food right now actual, actual <laughs> korean food yeah, I had. Uh, you're a korean right yes. yeah i knew that oh it's your know. last name right yeah it makes sense now if i really think about it yeah ha is kind of an unusual ha, yeah. korean name but the romanized spelling of it that's threw mm. me off but I guess you is a weird Romanized spelling of you, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, 
Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>